All right, Mara, are you excited about this? I am. This is Life, the Universe, and Everything. We're the, the Steam Factory podcast, and I'm excited to be here. My name is Chris Orban. I'm a physics professor at Ohio State, member of the Steam Factory. I'm here with Mara Mason, who uh, is also... So she's doing double duty this semester. What's your other role? I'm an intern for the Steam Factory, but this year I'm also a student life and campus events reporter for The Lantern, and I'm also a copy editor for The Lantern this year. So we're lucky to have uh, a lot of sort of back and forth between the, the Lantern students and the Steam Factory podcast. And so Mara, uh, this has kind of been your baby for a while. So why don't you kind of tell us what we're about to listen to? So we are about to listen to a lecture from Terry Tickle, which was a 2015 lecture about the first female expedition to Antarctica. I um, mean, that was of OSU students. And so I've been listening to this lecture for a good while. And so I've been pretty familiar with the story by now. And so it is incredible what these women did and the, the, the loops that they had to go through and the things that they had to do to overcome what was being thrown at them. And so it was inspiring, to say the least. Yeah. So this is so it's interesting in that in that respect as well, because I mean, I've listened to it a couple of times. This is not the first time we've listened to mm-hmm. it, but uh, I'm excited to sit down. With, I, we've never, I, we don't often get a chance to sit down and listen to it together. I think mm-hmm. it's kind of back and forth as we kind of go through this thing. But it's just, it, it's quite a remarkable story. And uh, it happened on campus in 2015. Not very many people know uh, that this happened. So over at the Bird Polar Research Center, which is over on West Campus at Ohio State, one of the best uh, polar research center, glacier research centers in the entire world. And so it was none other, it was none other than, than the Bird Polar Research Center in 1969 that sent this expedition out. And so uh, OSU definitely has a lot to be proud of in that area. And this is just one of the craziest stories <laughs> from from that uh, from 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 them. So, uh, so I'm excited about this, but uh, we should tell our listeners a few things to kind of set them up for this, right? Sure. So, what should they know before we start this thing? So, they should know about um, at first. One of the first things she mentions is that she saw an article in the Lantern, and the Lantern is our student newspaper here at OSU. That's the one that I write for, and some other of our interns write for as well. So, she's going to mention that early on. So, this lecture. Tell us more about what the circumstances of this lecture was on campus. So this was a recorded lecture that was on campus that we we acquired through the Bird Polar Research Center. They gave us special permission to use it in this podcast. And so what we did was we took the audio, kind of boiled it down into the stories that she tells. And and so it was a PowerPoint presentation. It was a full-fledged lecture that she gave. And then we kind of took the stories that she's telling and kind of boiled that down, like I said, and made that into what we can now put into a podcast. Right. So there's like a longer version that, mm-hmm. that people can find. So if they enjoy if they enjoy the podcast version, they can go find the longer full version that has video on it, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. So uh, if you fall in love with the story like we do, you can go ahead and, and, and find that on the, on the net. Now, uh, I want to say kind of one other thing before we start, a little bit of Antarctica trivia, <laughs> because she's giving the, the lecture in front of an audience at the Bird Polar Research Center. So everybody knows about Antarctica over there. But so the thing you need to know is that there's kind of two main places that researchers go and kind of hang out at Anta- in Antarctica. There is McMurdo Station, which is on the Antarctic coast. There's a little town there where people kind of go to. And then there's the South Pole Base, which is, you know, probably the coldest place on earth and she actually went to both of those places but she's going to talk about mcmurdo station like you know where it is uh so just to give you a heads up mcmurdo's on the coast whereas the south pole base is right smack 
at the South Pole. I think that about covers it. You think we're ready to do this? I think we are. All right, let's listen. I grew up on a farm. On farms, people get jobs based on what they're capable of doing, not because of their gender, but if you're large enough to throw hay bales onto the wagon, you throw the hay bales on the wagon. If you're too small, you feed the chickens. You do what you're capable of doing. And so I grew up believing, um, bless my parents who told me I could be anything I wanted to be, believing that you know, I, I was as good as anybody else. Not better than, but um, as good as anybody else. And when someone told me that there were 2,000 people who went through McMurdo Station in a year at that time, I heard there are 2,000 people who go through not men, not women, but 2,000 people. When I was 12 years old, my parents told me that they could not afford to send me to college, but they wanted me to go. So I needed to get jobs and a scholarship to be able to go to college. And I, since I was paying for it, I really felt like I didn't want to fumble around trying to figure out what I wanted to be as a major while I was paying for going to classes. So I needed a job. I was going to take some time off. And I was thinking about the Peace Corps when I opened the lantern one day and there was an article about a graduate student who had worked in Antarctica and I said, that's a job for me. So I walked into the Institute of Polar Studies and said to the secretary, hi, I want to apply for a job in Antarctica. And Peggy, the secretary, took great pity on me. Everyone in the room turned around and looked at me because they had been putting in proposals for years to get to the ice, and some had been successful, others not so. So it was, it was kind of surprising to them. And she said, well, <laughs> you know, they've never sent women to Antarctica before to do research. Um, but the, this is the first year that there will be a team going to Antarctica. Dr. Jones is going to be the head of that team. She has a full crew. There was no advertisement. I just walked in off the street. She has a full crew, but I'm sure she would talk to you about, about it. Um, I'll call her and see if she, you can talk to her. And I did. The next morning, she called me and said, one of my team members just dropped out. Would you like a job? And I said, yes, I'd be delighted. <laughs> so I was on my way to Antarctica. And I wrote a note saying, hey, mom and dad, I just got a job in Antarctica for next fall. Thinking, of course, that my parents would be just delighted out of their minds. And I was sort of right. My father was delighted, and my mother was out of her mind. <laughs> um, but I need to explain to you something about the time period, because I can see in the audience there are people who <laughs> weren't born in 1969. <laughs> this was a turbulent time. It was a time of hippies. It was a time of women's liberation. It was a time of, it was a time of bra burnings, and, and culture was pretty hedonistic, sex, drugs, rock and roll. The reason women had not gone to Antarctica until 1969 was not a fault of the National Science Foundation, who was ready at least a decade earlier during the International Geophysical Year to send women. The Navy was doing the logistical support, and they adamantly objected to this. 
the Navy was a little bit more straight-laced than most college campuses. And so when the Navy agreed to this, um, they put some criteria on it. You have to be out in the field. You have to be about at least 200 miles away from McMurdo most of the time. If you can't hack it and we send you back to the United States, we will not have women working in Antarctica again. If you cause any problems with the 2,000 men and four women, um, if anything happens, women will not come back here. Um, I think the Navy was as much concerned about what the wives of Navy men would say with women around when they hadn't seen their husbands for 14 months as they were about our safety and, and what we were doing. In fact, I don't think it was their concern at all what we were doing. It was to keep us away from their, their people. We knew that we could not fail. We knew that nothing could go wrong. We had to do everything correctly or people following us would not have opportunities that we were given. When a colleague of mine, subsequently a colleague of mine, went to Antarctica this same year, his physical consisted of going to his local doctor and talking about dive watches for 30 minutes. Our physicals consisted of being sent to Bethesda Naval Hospital, probed, sampled, talking to clinical psychologists for an entire day. It was very clear the Navy had some real concerns and that they were making it very plain to us exactly what they were concerned about. But our team consisted of Dr. Lois Jones, who had just gotten her PhD here at Ohio State, Kay Lindsay, Eileen McSavany was a graduate student in glaciology here, and then me. We went to Antarctica on a ski-equipped C-130 um, aircraft. It was, not a, it was not a passenger airline, people. <laughs> this thing was, we had little jump seats. It took hours. We had these um, uh, survival suits that we would wear. And um, they told us, you know, if they had to ditch the plane, the survival suit would keep us alive for a while. And about 45 minutes out of, away from um, Christchurch, everybody took off their survival suit. And I said, why are you doing that? And they said, well, it'll only keep you alive for about an hour, and you really don't want to hang around and then freeze to death. So no one actually explained to me landing in a ski-equipped aircraft on sea ice wavy sea ice with the pressure ridges. So when we landed, it was like bam, 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 bam. First, we had to buzz the airstrip about three or four times to get the seals off of it. And then bam, 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 down. It was an interesting flight. <laughs> People think of Antarctica as one great big ice sheet, and it is pretty much <laughs> one great big ice sheet, except for the Transantarctic mountain range and a few other places that stick up through the ice. We were in areas which were mostly ice-free, and you'll see what that means in a moment. The snow school was run by the New Zealanders. The first day, one of the instructors was laying on the floor sound asleep, and his head was banging on the floor every time we went over a ridge. And I thought, how can anybody possibly sleep in that kind of situation? 
By the end of the first day of snow school, I was so exhausted, I was sleeping on the floor, and I'm sure my head was bouncing. As we were going out, he said, you know, all American women are lounge lizards. You aren't going to make it through snow school. Well, that was sort of a challenge. We had to make it through snow school. There was no other choice. They were teaching us not to fall into bottomless crevasses, although in the dry valleys, there are no bottomless crevasses because we weren't on glaciers. But anyway, we had to take snow school. We had to pass. And yes, we did, and actually with flying colors. Um, if you injured yourself, if you were injured, they would send you home immediately because the, uh, it's, you're already putting out a lot of energy managing to um, keep warm and do your job and so forth. And so the theory was that you would not have enough energy to actually heal. So they just sent people home as soon as they injured themselves. There were a large number of people who were very happy to see us. We felt very welcomed. On the other hand, there were a few people who were not happy to see us. The day that we went out into the field, when we got ready to put our equipment on the helicopter, we noticed that um, somebody had replaced the equipment we had selected with whole, holy tents and defective sleeping bags. And so we had to go back and get appropriate equipment. All the news agencies were saying, trumpeting the fact this was the last bastion of male supremacy on the planet. And there were a few people who were not happy that we were there. A very small number, but you know, this is reality. They just, you know, either whether it was a male-female thing or whether it was um, they just didn't like women, I, I don't know. But um, we had a few interesting interactions. What you find out in the dry valleys is Everything is rocks, rocks from the size of houses to rocks the size of sand. And the wind blows almost constantly, except when it stops to change direction. So you very, very quickly become aware of the fact that you are a very small part of this world. You are a, if you want a lesson in humility, this is the perfect place to go. You learn exactly how important human beings are. <laughs> I was happy. The, my, uh, my sister-in-law said, it sounds like you were in prison. I loved this. It was fun. <laughs> the arrival of the helicopter was also a very important thing in our day. They didn't come every day. They didn't come every week. So we would write letters and give them to the pilots who had these nice flight suits with zippers and they would put them in their pockets and sometimes they would remember they were in there and sometimes it would take a month before they remembered they were in there. So connection with our families was a little challenging. Um, uh, one day, the helicopter landed. I walked out with a box of rocks. Rock boxes were about this size, very heavy. I walked out with a box of rocks and the crew chief, the, the um, pilots were in the bubble, the crew chief was standing there, and he was this tall, extremely slender fellow. Very slender. Okay. And he, I looked at him and thought, this guy isn't going to be able to hold this box of rocks. And he said, let me put it in the, in the helicopter. And I said, no, it's really heavy, let me put it in. He said, no, I'm the crew chief, 
I'm going to put it in. And I said, no, it's really heavy. And he said, no, I'm the crew chief. And of course, the pilots are watching this whole thing. And he said, look, darn it, I'm the crew chief. Give me that blankety blank box of rocks. And so I handed it to him, and he went straight down to the ground. <laughs> and the poor guy had to be transferred out of Antarctica because he got so much flack because one of the girls <laughs> dropped him to his knees, so to speak. Actually, on his face, so to speak. <laughs> so there was a lot of tension around that issue of men and women. The Navy was, when they caved in about allowing women, said, we are not going to go through having people barraging us to do this, that, or the other thing to get to the South Pole. Let's get it over with. We're going to collect all of them up and take them to the South Pole. So that's me. That's Lois. That's the admiral who was in charge of the operations in Antarctica. The lady from the press, Eileen, Kay, and the New Zealander. And we walked out the back of the C-130 because the admiral did not want someone to be able to say, I was first. They wanted us all to walk out and step out at the same moment and get it over with. By the way, it was minus a, a nice, brisk summer day of minus 50 degrees when we got there. And of course, wind was blowing. Standard um, welcoming ritual for working at South Pole Base welcoming ritual was to go into the sauna, get nice and warm, and then run in your birthday suit out around the South Pole a couple of times and back in. And we were strongly encouraged to do that, but thinking that that might qualify as something the Navy really wouldn't like, we decided that was a very poor idea. So, no, didn't do that. We were, we were there for a day. It was a day trip to the South Pole. And... Um, there was really no scientifically defensible reason for us to go there. It was really that the Navy wanted to just get it over with, which kind of makes you feel a little depressed that you're just there to get it over with. Yes? At any point, did, did you wish you were not there? No. There was not a The first night we were out in the field, they put us out late. We had to switch equipment and so forth. And I was very tired, and I honestly thought I was not going to wake up in the morning because <laughs> it was, I was very cold. But fortunately, the Navy gave us these wonderful Eddie Bauer 10-pound of down sleeping bags, which we learned to love <laughs> with a patient. They were wonderful. Um, no, there was not a moment that I regretted my decision to go. It was like a gift. Every morning, I woke up thrilled to be there. Okay, when we were in McMurdo, after I had done the, water, the chemical, chemistry or whatever lab work we were doing, got in a shower, ordered all the supplies that we needed and so forth, if I had a little extra time, I was allowed to go help some of the other um, research projects that were going on from other universities. We also went to Cape Royds because um, it and Kenya, a uh, spot in Kenya, Africa, are the only two places, at least at that time, where a mineral called kenyite was um, known from. And Dr. Jones wanted to collect some kenyite. So we went to Cape Royds and um, collected some, some kenyite and actually got to see some penguins. But sadly, 
all good things have to come to an end. And um, it was so, it was such a beautiful place. It was such a wonderful time. It was a time that I saw things I never thought I would see in my lifetime. And it was a time where I was resolving what I wanted to do with my life. I certainly decided there that I, I needed to do field work and I needed to be a researcher. I loved it. I actually wept when I left, had to leave Antarctica. And I came back to Ohio State and there were riots. And then there was Kent State. So they sent everyone home. I didn't have the opportunity to interact as much with people at the Institute of Polar Studies as I would have liked. And the after story is this. Um, at some point in the riots and the this and the that, um, someone from the National Science Foundation came to Ohio State and asked to talk to me. And he was the deputy director, I think is the appropriate term, at the time. And um, the National Science Foundation asked if I knew that um, Kay was collecting mites and springtails. And I said, sure, I knew that. I'm a biologist. I watched her collect them. And he got extremely upset and said that none of us would ever set foot in Antarctica again because apparently it was not only it had been proposed and the National Science Foundation said you can do this part of the research but not this part. But Kay chose to do what she wanted to do. And you know, I was the cook and chief bottle washer and field assistant, so I had never seen the study plan. I had no idea. But as a result, not only the positive things like I learned that what I wanted to do with my life, but also that statement that none of us would ever set foot in Antarctica again caused me to go a different direction with my career. So I went off to the University of Georgia and got my PhD in ecology and studied organisms from stressed environments, but different kinds of stresses. And as a result, I lost track of people at the Institute of Ecology that I, the few that I knew, and um, disappeared from, from view. So now you've found me. Um, and that's the story. Like during, in today's society, there, women, women are still like underrepresented in the STEM fields, especially. Um, how do you think women today can kind of like use your story and um, get over these obstacles of like, you know, pressure to not do male oriented or supposedly oriented um, work in the science world? My experience tells me that you tend to create your own chains. If you let people tell you you can't do things, you can't do them. If you t say to yourself, I'm a human being, I'm capable of certain things, not other things, but I'm going to be the best human being I can be. I'm going to do the most things. I'm going to live my life with the most vigor that I can. Then you'll hear people say, well, you can't do math. You're a woman. And so you do 
you just tell them they're full of it and show them you can. I think the one issue in that is that people believe what they're told. My experience is you just go out there and ask to do things. If you don't ask, you never get to do them. If I hadn't walked in and said, hey, I want a job in Antarctica, facing what probably could have been ridicule because it was, if I had gone a year earlier, they would have laughed me out of the office. But I did it and it worked. I've done things in my life that didn't work. Okay, so what? If I hadn't asked, I would never have had any of my experiences in life. When I joined the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, gee, there were hardly any women professionals. I ended up you know, on, at the directorate level of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, people told me I couldn't do things. They said, you aren't qualified. I had one fellow when I was in graduate school who, we were at a party, he got drunk. He told me that women weren't really qualified to work in fish and fish and wildlife service. Fifteen years later, I had his job. <laughs> um, I had a couple of professors here at Ohio State who were on a committee to hand out a scholarship for a course that was a field course, and I applied for it. I did not get it. Um, several years later, I was their boss. They were in two different locations, but I was their boss, and I just asked them about it, and they said, yeah, you were far and away the most qualified person for it, but we didn't give it to you because you were female. And I said, well, guess what? <laughs> I guess I am qualified since I'm your boss. <laughs> and to be perfectly honest, there are things I can't do. I have a tin ear. My capacity at music is zero going into a negative number. But you know what? I didn't try to do that. I tried to do something else. What advice would you give students who were maybe near a situation and like hadn't been far away from home? And what advice would you give to them if they're on the brink of study abroad or doing something outside of their comfort zone? Read Emily Dickinson. There's a poem by Emily Dickinson that says, Goodbye to the life I used to live and the world I used to know, and kiss the hills for me just once, and now I'm ready to go. You know, do it. Um, the most, um, I don't know if, if you are familiar with Joseph Campbell, who was a comparative religionist, but he talked about the hero's journey. And each person has to, in their lives, go through a hero's journey of some kind, a recognition that, Yes, I'm an adult and I am capable and I am confident that I can live my life. And that's really important. People really need those kinds of experiences. And they'll find out that the world is really a, generally a pretty nice place and people will help you. So, yeah, I'd encourage people to jump into it with both feet. So you've been listening to Terry Tickhill's talk to the Bird Polar Research Center, which they were kind enough to let us uh, rebroadcast on the Steam Factory podcast. Uh, so the editing of that was done by Mara Mason here uh, in the studio with me. And we've just been listening to it uh, like you guys have. So Mara, uh, 
what what stands out to you listening to it again? I know you've probably listened to it a bunch of times. It's <laughs> I have to say, in terms of things to listen to over and over again, this one this one is it doesn't get old. It doesn't, yeah. And there are a lot of lessons in here that she highlights really well that she had to learn that that there was the biggest concern, like she said, that the Navy had of them is that what would the Navy wives think? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting to to think about the Navy's perspective on this because you know. The newspapers and magazines around the world are talking about this this first female led trip to Antarctica. So it was it was definitely in the news and you know, the Navy wives back home are reading this and their husbands have been at McMurdo Station for like the last six months and here's <laughs> you know, here's all these uh you know, young women who are going to, to do the science expedition. So I don't know, there's there's part of me that can kind of understand a little bit of where the Navy is coming from with this, but on the other hand it does seem ridiculous the whole story about how one of her male colleagues just, you know, talked to the doctor for five minutes yeah. to prep for the trip and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the other things that, that you think of when you're listening to it again? Uh, my favorite story that she tells is the box of rocks story. Um, I remember laughing at that the first time I heard it and it still makes me like, makes me crack up every single time. And it just it really highlights the the gender discrimination that these women had. They said, well, you can't do this like. I'm going I'm to do this because I'm the crew chief and like this is my job. And then they try it and they, they fall on their face. And even though like they were facing things like this every single day in McMurdo Station uh, at the South Pole, like they were doing it in quotes just to get it over with. They heard that. They knew that was happening, but they were still excited to be there. They were happy to be there. Like she said, she signed up for this. She walked right in and just jumped in with both feet said this is what i want to do yeah i think the box of rock story is is probably the most light-hearted illustration mm-hmm. of the kind of tension that was there at, at in, in antarctica i mean there's there's definitely some more um overt parts of the story mm-hmm. uh you know she tells a story about how they found out that their sleeping bags and their tents had holes in them mm-hmm. Uh, which you know, just to our ears, it's like, oh yeah, there was holes in it, and they had to go back, or whatever. But that, I mean, that's that's a death threat, like that's attempted murder. I mean, this, we're talking about Antarctic here. Mm-hmm. This is you know, incredibly cold weather that they're experiencing. So that was one of the things that stood out to me. Um, one of the things that that I noticed, and I'm a big fan of the the 99% Invisible podcast. That's all about design and things like that, you know. So I'm a professor and I'm writing all these. I mean, I've I've written proposals to the NSF not to go to Antarctica or anything, but proposals to do this and that, and I always have to have this extremely clear plan for it and things like that. So one of the things that I that I missed the first ten times I listened to this thing was that I could have sworn that she said that the design of their expedition was that they would be at most 200 miles from McMurdo Station. Like originally, that's what I thought that she was saying. But if you listen to it, she says at least 200 miles from McMurdo Station. So the reality was that they were out sleeping in tents on the Antarctic coast for I forget how many weeks it was. It might have been like two months or something. And uh, and they're trying to keep them away from McMurdo Station because they want, you know, the Navy wives need to know that these women are going to be away from their their husbands there. And so that... That little detail to me, I, I think, in, in terms of the planning of the study, that little detail that they have to be at least 200 miles away means that they weren't, they weren't sort of, this wasn't their sort of like the gentle introduction to Antarctica. 
they weren't sort of dipping a toe into Antarctica as, as sort of like the first woman, oh, okay, you're going to break the glass barrier, ice barrier, I don't know what it is. But, you know, they are doing, they are roughing it as much as any other male team would. And the Navy was trying to see if they were going to die. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so the reason that, you know, so in in that context, the whole thing with, with the tents and the sleeping bags, like, People were trying to kill these women so there wouldn't be more women at the South Pole. Mm-hmm. So that it would that it would continue to be this sort of the last bastion of male supremacy. Yeah, as they said. So that was the thing that I that I kind of noticed. Um, I don't know. I don't know what other things were, you had. I'm kind of along the same lines. When they when they went through snow school, um, their instructor had said, "Well, you know, all American women are lounge lizards," and so she. She talks a little bit later on about how, yes, they were getting things like this often, but they acknowledged them and they said, all you can do is prove them wrong because that's what they did. And they, she said that they all passed through snow school with flying colors. They had to learn how to, I think she said, avoid bottomless crevasses and do all of these wild things that on the daily, like most of us don't even think about having to avoid a bottomless crevasse. But they were doing all of these incredible things. And they were proving everyone wrong. And they said the Navy told them that if women, if these women didn't succeed down in Antarctica, then they wouldn't send women again. And so they pretty much paved the way for all of the future, all of the future women that have traveled to Antarctica. They were like, they were the first ones and they made it and they did it and they made it happen. Yeah. Another, uh, another interesting Part of the story is kind of the afterwards and how they figured out that, you know, they didn't totally follow the the the, the National Science Foundation study plan. So she changed careers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that you know, I originally I wasn't sure whether we should include that, but I, I kind of feel like now that we listen to it now, I mean, this is a, that's an important part of her story mm-hmm. afterwards and uh, just kind of how she, which I don't. Which was a which is an interesting thing to, to to think about. You know, basically they they decided to take biology samples instead, in addition to the the geological ones, uh, and that just that just kind of pissed off the NSF. I mean, I think the the rule the rule there is that you you do not piss you know you don't bite the hand that feeds you don't piss off the funding agency. Uh, but it is interesting how that kind of uh, ended up shaping her career, even though she had absolutely nothing. To do with that, uh, she was kind of penalized for it. So thanks so much, Mara, for you know digging into this uh, story and to to sort of help. You know, we went back and forth editing this for a while mm-hmm. until we felt like we, we kind of had the the essence of it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, there's a lot of stuff we kind of we ended up having to take out, and so you can you can listen to those parts in the full video. But we hope you enjoyed the talk by Terry Tickle at the Bird Polar Research Center at Ohio State University. So thanks for listening. Uh, thanks, Mara, for, for doing the work to edit this down. <laughs> so, uh, right. Well, until next time, uh, signing off from Life, the Universe, and Everything, the Steam Factory podcast. Thanks. Thanks.